Guardian Unlimited. Assalamualaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, the Guardian's weekly look at life in Muslim Britain. Today we slip on our sandals, pull on our burkinis and head for the beach. Yes, it's a holiday special. Consider me your trolley dolly, your blue badge, your Gloria Hunniford and even your Alan Wicker. Did you know that tourism is the world's biggest single industry? It's worth more than $500 billion a year. In today's show, we'll be checking out your experiences, have a top 10 of the best halal holiday destinations for the discerning Muslim traveller, and there's the return of Fatwa Focus. With me in the studio is Tom Hall from Lonely Planet. Hello, Tom. Hi there. I'm going to Zanzibar for my holiday. You're a travel expert. Where are you going for yours? No, I like to go anywhere as much as I can. My next destination is Hong Kong, um, but I'm also a bit of a homebody. Some of my favourite places are the Lake District, the Highlands of Scotland. In terms of uh, Islamic countries, I'd have to go for Dubai as my number one. So, Dubai, it's the first time you've heard that destination in this programme, but it won't be the last. Now, going on holiday and staying halal can prove tricky. When we called Thompson's, they had no idea what our requirements were beyond a bed and flights. So I thought I'd head to a Muslim travel agent on Brick Lane and find out what they're offering. My name is Mosul Haq. Uh, I own a travel agent, Bangladeshi travel agent in Brick Lane. What kind of holidays do you sell? Um, I don't exactly sell holidays. Uh, we actually do flights just to Middle East and uh, Far East. Which would you say are the most popular destinations among your clients? Uh, the most popular destination is Bangladesh. That's because that's where they're from and they just go back to visit family. Other than that, it would be Dubai. I mean, a lot of like to stop over to Dubai or Doha. And uh, then it's not exactly a holiday, like a Hajj period. Like most people would want to go to Jeddah and they would buy a package. So when we're talking about Hajj, how much does it cost to go to Hajj compared to a trip to Dubai? Dubai, you're looking at a flight for, say, 250 And then one of my friends just recently booked a five-star hotel for 10 nights. I think it's costing about £800. So you're looking at a grand per person if it's a five-star hotel. What about Hajj, though? Just a very uh, basic uh, package you're looking at, at least £1,800 per person. person. I mean, from your experience in the travel industry, do you think Muslims are interested in going on holiday? They are. There's a lot of people that go on holidays. Just the travel industry was started by our older generation, like our uncles and dads and stuff. They concentrated on selling tickets to back home. People like me who took over and we're trying to move away from that, even though like that's my bread and butter. Do you think there will come a time that they'll be ready to spread their wings and do something a bit more adventurous? Believe me, uh, they do. I mean, there's a lot of Asians that go to European holidays. <laughs> Last year when Amsterdam, Holland, that was good, but I, f- I thought that was a bit too much. Yeah, red light district, that's it, that's the place. We went there for one week. Yeah, I enjoyed myself because there was so much skunk. <laughs> so presumably when you were making your holiday choices, your religion and your culture didn't have any influence over your decision? Not really, no. But basically when you have kids, you'll make different decisions because you'll yeah, have... I have got kids. Oh, you have got kids? I've got three kids. Yeah. And they're still baby. So you won't be taking your kids to Amsterdam. Where will you take them? Definitely not Amsterdam. I'm going to take them somewhere. I don't mind going Egypt. 
Did your wife go to Amsterdam? No. Does she know you went to Amsterdam? She does. Does she know that you went for the skunk? She knows. <laughs> I've been Italy, I've been Dubai, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Bangkok, Singapore. I've been to Italy twice, been to Portugal, then I've been to Greece. Last year I went to Tunisia and this year hopefully to Egypt. When you're booking your holidays, what about going back home? Is that important to you? No, not really. I went back in 89, 1989, so I guess it's not. <laughs> um, I noticed that you've got your head covered. How important is it for you to go to a Muslim country? Yes, it's very important to go because I've got my head covered. I actually went to America and didn't feel really comfortable there because you get the stairs and things like that. Whereas if you go to a Muslim country or somewhere that, you know, everybody's aware of Muslims and there's a majority, you don't get the looks, you don't get the stairs. I want to go where I know that the food is going to be halal and I'm not going to be out of place with my head covered somewhere where I'm going to be comfortable. Generally when you're travelling abroad is it important for you to be in a country where Muslims are a majority? No, not at all. I feel comfortable wherever I am. So are you going on holiday this year or have you been on holiday recently? Last year I went to Dubai. Two years ago I went to Dubai again. Dubai. Dubai. I've been Dubai. Dubai. I'm planning on going to Dubai. A lot of variety there. I like the concept of dual identity holidays, one for you and your mates, the other for your wife and family. Some people only want to go to Muslim nations, though others are less bothered, and it seems that young Muslims are taking lots of holidays, not just heading back home to see their grandparents. But everyone I spoke to was talking about Dubai. Tom, what's the attraction of this place? Well, Dubai has everything, and by everything I mean far too much of everything. It's 100% over the top, um, more than you've ever expected. Dubai, you might not think of it as being like Las Vegas, but when you get there, it really is. Giant skyscrapers, enormous shopping palaces, huge malls. Um, It has a ski slope in the desert. It, you can go out and you can bash up 4x4 cars on sand dunes. You can go to five-star, six-star hotels, whatever you want. It's all there in Dubai. And if you don't want to go outside into the 50-degree heat, you can stay in air-conditioned comfort the whole time. It really is um, a completely over-the-top place, and that's part of the attraction. It seems to be appealing, though, to uh, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, though. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the benefits of somewhere like Dubai is that it has a very strong Islamic culture, though because it's positioning itself as a stopover destination, it has a relatively liberal uh, government. Um, you can go there if you want. Alcohol is served. At the same time, if you're walking around and you're fully veiled, nobody's going to bat an eyelid at you. So it really does have something both Muslims and non-Muslim travellers. Uh, Now, we heard from our travel agent that pilgrimages are big business in Saudi Arabia. You're talking £1,800 for a basic package. Now, that's a big chunk of your travel budget. If you get the money together for Hajj, um, how about stopping off somewhere en route? Tom, what places would you recommend in the region? Well, the first thing that I'd say is if you're fortunate enough to be admitted into Saudi Arabia to do a pilgrimage, um, to try and extend your travel as much as you possibly can. Saudi Arabia has much more than just Mecca. So when you go there, try and do some snorkelling if you can. It's got some of the best diving in the world. And there are very few companies that are actually doing this. There's also a place called Medin Saleh, which is uh, a little bit like Petra in Jordan. If anyone's seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. A fraction of the crowds. Nobody goes there. That's because they're quite tight with their visas, though, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, Saudi Arabia does not like letting people in who are not going there on a pilgrimage. The reason is they've got stacks of cash. They don't have to let these pesky tourists in who are going to be dropping litter and doing all that kind of stuff. So Muslims do want the real deal. Apart from seeing sites of religious importance, we want to shop, relax and maybe doing something a little more adventurous. Tom just talked about snorkelling. Well, I caught up with Akila at her South London home and she told me about her most recent trip, which was to Saudi Arabia. I went to Saudi Arabia with my two children, aged 11 and 7. 
my family are out there, my brother and his family, um, and we went to stay with them in Jeddah. And what did you get up to while you were over there? One of the highlights was uh, we went snorkelling in the Red Sea, went as a family, and didn't have a clue what it would be like. And it's one of the best experiences that I've had on holiday. It was just a myriad of the coral life, sea anemones, giant sea slugs, uh, sea snakes. A friend of mine spotted sharks, and that's when we exited on the second um, venture, and we didn't go back because of the sharks. Fantastic. Was it a water sports centre that you went to, and what were the facilities like? It wasn't a water sport facility. It was, quite frankly, open beach. We set off immediately after dawn, Fajr prayer. We found a quiet spot on the Red Sea. There were a few families out there already, um, quite a few men as well. And we just picked a spot as isolated as we could be. We ventured out into the sea, quite simply. What did you do about the wetsuit? We didn't do anything about a wetsuit. Um, we agreed out there. We stayed covered. We didn't wear the full face covering niqab, which I wore out there when I was there. But because we were semi-isolated, we had the full hijab, a on. Um, and it wasn't an issue because once you're out, your clothes aren't an issue and you're just focusing, you're just intent on the sea life. What's it like being a tourist in Saudi Arabia? You blend in. You don't feel that you are a tourist. You're doing what the natives are doing, spending time by the sea, barbecues, picnics, um, swimming. It's all available. You're covered like everybody else. So as a female Muslim, it's just not an issue. You talked about blending in. Is this something that's important to you and your friends when you're travelling abroad? It is, because living in the West, born in the West and converted to Islam, it's not a matter of adapting, it's just you feel normal. You, you don't feel that people are giving you any particular attention, unwanted attention. So you're able to relax a lot more easier and you know that facilities are set up for you to enjoy. You're able to do a lot more. You've got a lot more freedom. Akila was talking about being a tourist in Saudi Arabia, but holidaying Muslims in package destinations are still a rare sight. Why do you think those two guys got chucked off that flight to Malaga? The passengers thought they were terrorists, but no, they were tourists. Easily confused. But if you arouse suspicion by looking Arab or Asian, speaking a foreign language and, heaven forbid, sporting a beard or, worse still, wearing hijab or niqab, it's sometimes safer to go to a country where you don't look like the FBI's most wanted. Tom, she talked about blending in and what a difference that made to her holiday. Do you think tourists should be able to blend in with the locals or should they step out of the comfort zone? I think it depends on your destination and, and certainly on your personal confidence as a traveller. Obviously, if you're in somewhere like Saudi Arabia, it, it, it is much more helpful as a, a woman traveller, particularly if you do blend in, because you're not stopped and being questioned, what are you doing, where are you going, where's your husband, etc. Um, in other places, I think, why not stand out? You are consciously different to the people who that you're visiting, even if you, you, know, you share a religion with them. Part of the fun is going and finding out what those differences are. And if you are dressed the same as someone, there's less chance that you're going to be kind of a, a approach and talk to. Remember, when you're travelling somewhere, people look at you and think, oh, you know, that person's curious. I wonder where they're from, wonder what their lives are like. And those sort of exchanges are ones that happen when you do stand out, when you don't blend in. How do you develop a travel industry for minority groups? I mean, you now have holidays for old people, gay people. Could you have a travel industry for Muslims? Well, I think... A tourism industry for Muslims? I think from some of the quotes that we were hearing at the start, you certainly have the desire to travel on behalf of uh, Muslim travellers, to travel beyond the traditional ways of either going home or or going on a pilgrimage. And certainly that's a start. I think the second thing is really recognising that market and offering things specifically for it. So are there ways that you could put together a group, for example, that goes 
and there is halal food provided without the having to go to the difficulty of finding a restaurant and asking for it. Something that can smooth some of the passage. But the other thing I'd say is that younger travellers increasingly, they, they want to travel independently. They want to do their own thing. They don't want to be constrained by being part of a package. So in that case, it's a case of making information more available. And as someone who you know works for a guidebook company, it's something that we need to think about is what sort of information are we providing for specific groups of travellers. Okay, so there are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. Mecca alone attracts 4 million people during the pilgrimage season every year, and the Hajj generates $100 million in revenue. There's lots of cash sloshing around. Uh, No surprise, then, that there are some countries out there actively seeking your custom. Malaysia celebrates its 50th year of independence, and it's working hard to attract the Ummah to its shores. I spoke to Mohammed Razip Hassan from the Malaysia Tourism Promotion Board to find out what they were up to. We always greet our brothers, you know, with Assalamualaikum. Okay, they feel, wow, this is the country. We do many promotions, you know, to attract this Muslim market, especially from the UK and islands, so that they could do packages uh, to Malaysia and offering more uh, programs to be enjoyed and experienced by the Muslim travellers. And we measure this from the outcome. At the end of their tours, of their stay in Malaysia, we, we, we see their smile, they enjoy, they, they buy more things. Um, why is it important to make Muslims from other countries feel comfortable in Malaysia? Because Malaysia is a moderate Muslim country. It's one of the Muslim model, great nation. Uh, we have the facilities and we are talking about food. Even the whole country is halal. Now, Malaysia is hosting a halal conference this year. What is a halal conference and what does tourism have to do with that? Basically, this halal conference is to make Malaysia as a halal hub. And from the tourism point of view, it will create another opportunities for investors to use Malaysia as a meeting point to discuss all these issues of halal. Where are your Muslim visitors coming from? You mentioned the Middle East. If you look at our neighbours, Brunei, you know, Indonesia, even Singapore, from the Indian continents, from China, you have a very big uh, Muslim population there. Because uh, now we are talking about those from the UK, from the Europe, because we have a very big presence of British Muslim. They are, they are professionals, they are bankers, they are lawyers, and then uh, students. Uh, to London is only 10 to 11 hours. So so we are reachable, accessible. So they are our target group. So we want them to come. What would you say to Muslims who are considering a holiday to Dubai? Well, if they can go to Dubai, why not to Malaysia? Okay, Dubai is another masterpiece that a Muslim country can project to the world. And on the other angle, uh, what Dubai doesn't have, we have. You know, we have greens, we have nature, and we have the people, and we have the food, and uh, and everything that you can find in Malaysia is also meant for our Muslim brothers and sisters and families from all other parts of the world to come to Malaysia. So I would say time is now, the place is Malaysia. Mohammed Razip Hassan there giving us the full works about Malaysia. 
Tom, they've got adverts absolutely everywhere. Would you recommend Malaysia as a holiday destination? Well, I, I think I've been partly sold on it, actually. <laughs> this, this, this fantastic idea of having a halal hub in the world, I think, is, is a very novel and very original one. And it, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Nobody's really grabbing this opportunity. It sounds like the Malaysians really are. Mm. So good luck to them from that point of view. In terms of the country itself, I think in comparison to Thailand, to the north of Malaysia, travellers might find it a little bit staid and boring. It does have beautiful beaches. It does have some very nice highlands to go trekking. Does it have in. orangutans? It does have yeah, orangutans. Okay. So you have to go across to Borneo, which is a the, the, you know it is still part of Malaysia, <laughs> right. but it's not part of the mainland. So a, a two centre holiday, you you could go and do that. And um, so it does have these rainforests, though they're being chopped down at an alarming rate. Um, so go there while they're still go there yeah. while they're still there. And and the other thing I'd say is um, they're being extremely clever, the Malaysians, in terms of positioning Kuala Lumpur as a low budget travel hub. So it hasn't started yet, but there are a couple of airlines looking to fly from Europe to Malaysia and then on to Australia for very cheap fares. I think mm. we're talking in the region of £99 or maybe even lower. 99, so, what? £99 one way. It hasn't started yet, but AirAsia X is the airline that wants to do it. Tom, what are your halal hotspots for 2007? Number 10. Number 10 is Mali in West Africa. It's home to the world's largest mud brick mosque and it's really an adventurous destination. There are wonderful old train rides that people can take here and also you can go and trek and meet some you know, fascinating people. Great music as well for nightlife bus. Number 9. Number nine is Morocco, um, probably the, the best value um, Islamic country that you can get to from the UK. Uh, less than three hours away is Marrakesh. I think everybody's heard of that. It really is a sort of, you know, uh, the, the Middle East of the Arabian Nights. Fantastic place. Number eight. Number eight is New York City. Uh, not necessarily the first place that would spring to mind, but New York is wonderful at grabbing your stereotypes and turning them on its head. It's very different to the rest of the United States. Every single culture in the world is represented there, and you're sure to meet like-minded people wherever you go. Number seven. Jordan and Syria um, are a wonderful Middle Eastern destination. Um, old souks and, and wonderful medinas and just a wonderful food as well. Absolutely brilliant place to go any time of the year. Number six. Slightly unusual pick, perhaps, but uh, the east of Ethiopia, uh, in particular the ancient city of Hara, it's the third uh, holiest Islamic city. Um, it really is a, a very out-of-the-way place. It takes quite a bit of effort to get there, but when you do, you will see uh, men feeding hyenas, uh, using their teeth, uh, hundreds of mosques, some of which are built into trees. It really is a unique destination. Can't recommend it highly enough. Now, you've talked about some destinations that are off the beaten track where you are from Lonely Planet, so that's to be expected. Um... And this is really to say to people, you know, go beyond the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. They don't need to be constrained by the Middle East. In fact, you know, the, the crescent of, uh, of Islamic nations goes right across the world and there's a huge amount of choice out there. Cool. Number five. I picked at number five Central Asia, in particular Uzbekistan. If you're a mosque fan, uh, Samarkand <laughs> and Tashkent, they have some of the absolutely most breathtaking mosques that you'll see in the world. A, a beautiful uh, aquamarine tiling and really unspot hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And this is Silk Road scenery from the time of Marco Polo. Have um, you been to Uzbekistan? Oh, I have, yes. Number four. <laughs> Um, at number four, I've gone for Bangladesh. Now, obviously, quite a lot of people listening to this may have been to Bangladesh, but not as a tourist destination. Now, Bangladesh is great for a number of things. It has a lot of things that really made India an appealing destination, but it has a fraction of the visitors. You can also see tigers in national parks in Bangladesh, and also with global warming, it's worth going there while the majority of it is still in place. 
Number three. Number three is Australia. I chose this because Australia is the home of the burkini. So if you fancy spending a little bit of time on the beach, this is where it was designed. And you can go to Sydney or Melbourne, and they both have a very fast-growing uh, Islamic populations and Islamic culture. So uh, a visit here is a, it's kind of you know a, a trip with a twist, I would say. Number two. Paris is one of the Europe's great Islamic cities. Uh, Paris Mosque is one of the most tranquil places that you can go to. Uh, you can sit and sip mint tea, and it really is a very nice place to watch the world go by. Just next door is the Institut du Monde Arabe, the Institute of the Arab World, and this is one of Paris's most striking modern buildings. Really, really stunning place, and Paris is always wonderful. I'm really surprised that you said Paris. I would not have put that in a top ten Muslim-friendly destination. Well, despite the sort of uh, the, the negative publicity about the French. Uh, uh, and their attitudes towards uh, Muslim dress. Paris has a very large Islamic population, mm-hmm. and you know it, it, it's a, uh, a legacy of Paris's colonial heritage. And I, I just felt on a trip there, I decided to look a little bit into it myself, and I fell completely in love with Paris Mosque and spent the whole afternoon hanging around there, reading and drinking tea. And ladies and gentlemen, your number one halal holiday destination is. It's Istanbul, um, which in many ways is the ultimate city. Istanbul is a, a meeting of east and west. It's a, a summer with fantastic mosques, remarkable history, incredible architecture, but also this brilliant nightlife, and everybody is really living life to the full in Istanbul. It's a city that's really on the rise at the moment, and, and you know it's becoming more and more modern and progressive with every day, and I think it just sums up more than anything else uh, the, the kind of the changes that are taking place in the Islamic world at the moment. Okay, thanks for your tips, Tom. They were really helpful. That was some worldly advice from our man at Lonely Planet. Now for some spiritual advice about your holiday plans. We have a super sunny fatwa focus. What holiday reading would you recommend to Muslims who are about to embark on a long journey? Hi, Riazza. I want to know, please, um, what advice would you give to a family that's considering a holiday abroad but they've not performed Hajj? I have the money put aside already for the vacation overseas, but should I use this instead for a future pilgrimage? Should I feel guilty about going on holiday, or should I always be striving to perform Hajj again? I want to know what are the recommended tourist activities for Muslims when they're on holiday. For example, is it recommended to visit places of historical or cultural interest? So, those were the questions, and here are the answers. You don't have to take the Quran on a long-haul flight or even as your holiday reading. Reading increases your knowledge of a culture, a language or literature. But obviously reading material should fall within the parameters of Islamic teachings. About Hajj and going on holiday. If a Muslim family or couple have enough funds to perform Hajj, it is their duty to do that first before going on holiday. There are other conditions on Hajj. It can only be performed at a certain time of the year. So you need to have funds to perform it at that time of year. You also need to be in good health as the Hajj can be strenuous and a female must have a male with her, either her husband, brother or son or father, to accompany her during this period. If these conditions are met, then it becomes fard to perform hajj, and it is a once-in-a-lifetime duty. Once hajj is performed, Muslims are no longer obliged to perform it again unless they wish to do so. Visiting sites of cultural or historical interest is encouraged because, again, it increases knowledge. When participating in such an activity, one's primary intention should be spiritual, seeing and recognising the signs of Allah's powers of creation. Muslims are not encouraged to engage in activities that morally or ethically put their integrity at risk. Tom, thanks for coming into our studio and enjoy your holidays. Thank you. 
So, I hope some of Tom's advice has been useful to you. I know the list of places I want to go to has just grown. If you've got any travel advice you want to share, get on the Guardian blog site and spread the word. That's all for this week's Islamophonic. It was produced by Matt Haywood and presented by me, Riazat Butt. Jazakallah for listening and happy holidays wherever you go. Guardian Unlimited.